0: Yay, Nay, or may. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Meh presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is another streaming edition of this podcast, which once again has been delayed quite a lot. I've had a couple of cinematic editions since the last streaming edition. I've been very, very busy with both the Film Bath Festival and the Africa Eye Festival in Bristol. But at the time of recording I've got only one more Film Bath festival screening to attend so I actually have some time to record this streaming episode. And I have seven films in this particular show. I have three VOD films, which I downloaded onto my tablet, three Netflix films with some Oscar buzz about them, and an Apple TV Plus film with some Oscar buzz as well. In this episode, I will be reviewing... Here before the Irish psychological horror ghost story almost that was out at the beginning of the year and I watched via VOD, we have the micro-micro-budget horror comedy Val and the Clarks-esque American indie film Summer Issues. On Netflix, we have the latest creepy stop-motion animated feature from Henry Selleck, This one, produced by Jordan Peele, Wendell, and Wild. We also have the somewhat Oscar-baity narrative feature, *The Good Nurse*, about a ICU nurse who. Killed at least thirty patients, possibly as much as four hundred patients before he was eventually caught, and they made a narrative feature about this, directed by the excellent Danish filmmaker Tobias Lindholm and a couple of weeks after that, and yeah, I've delayed this enough that it's actually been released in time for me to review it. There's also a true crime documentary about the same case available on Netflix. Capturing the killer nurse. So I thought, since I'm reviewing The Good Nurse in this episode, I may as well review the true crime documentary version as well and compare and contrast the two different ways of telling the same story, which I thought is an interesting exercise. And finally, in this particular episode, we have the film released onto Apple TV Plus Raymond and Ray a Sundance-esque independent film about the traumas of a dysfunctional family. So a wide variety of stuff in this episode, much of it somewhat Oscar-baity, and I'm really going to have to tick off some of these Oscar-baity films coming up, but in this episode I will be reviewing Here Before, Val, Summer Issues, Wendell and Wild, Wilde, The Good Nurse, Capturing the Killer Nurse, and Raymond and Ray. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. VOD Reviews Here before is a psychological horror slash ghost story, I think is perhaps the best way to describe it which has been written and directed by the Northern Irish director Stacey Gregg, who has some credits as a writer in their background, has directed a couple of episodes of the black horror comedy The Baby, which is on HBO Max and Sky Atlantic, and their latest film, Bally Walter, or the latest film as writer, Bally Walter, has just premiered at the Belfast Film Festival, so I think Stacey Gregg is going to be a name to look out for, particularly given this film Here Before, which got a cinematic release in February 2022, and I heard about it and it sounded really, really interesting, particularly since I love Andrea Riseborough. But it was a small enough cinematic release that it slipped through the cracks and no cinema in my region was actually showing it. If it had been any cinema I could get to that was showing it, I would have watched it back in February. But I held off on it and thinking, okay, I'll catch up with that one later on VOD, particularly since it seemed the type of film which might eventually end up on Shudder.com. It had that kind of vibe to it. So I thought, okay, maybe it'll show up on Shudder. If not, I'll just buy a rental of it. And it just didn't show up on Shudder, so I bought myself a rental of it. And then a couple of weeks later, this coming weekend as I'm recording, Here Before is being shown on BBC2. So I could have waited a little bit longer and watched it without paying for it, but Hey, paying for independent cinema is always something I'm okay with so yes I bought a rental of here before which stars Andrea Reesborough as a mother living in a semi-detached house on the outskirts of Belfast with her husband John Joe O'Neill and her teenage son Louis McCaskey who was the older brother in Belfast back at the beginning of the year, uh, Kenneth Branners Belfast. And a new family is moving into the other half of this semi-detached house. Eileen O'Higgins and her partner Martin McCann and her daughter Neve Dornan. And Neve Dornan, who is about eight years old or so, Immediately attracts the attention of the neighbour Andrea Reesborough. And Andrew Reesborough is strongly reminded of her own dead daughter when Neve Dornan moves in next door. And this starts to become a little bit of an obsession. Andrea Reesborough starts to convince herself against her better judgment that somehow. Her own dead daughter has come back in the form of this little girl who has lived next door. And this is not helped by the fact that every now and again this little girl says or does something a little bit odd. When Andrew Reesborough is giving her a lift home from school and they're driving past the graveyard, she says, Do you remember when we were here before? When. Neve Dornan is at a local playground. She points to an empty spot in the playground and says, there used to be a little yellow horse there, didn't there? And this is a playground she's never been before. When Neve Dornan comes round to tea with Andrew and his family, she sits there waiting for Andrew Easeborough to do a catch-up smile on her fish finger sandwiches. All of these little things, these little moments... Andrew Reesborough becomes more and more convinced that somehow her daughter has come back to her in the form of this little girl next door. And things start getting a little bit creepy, a little bit complicated, and psychologically dense. So what is exactly going on, and will Andrew Reesborough keep a hold of her sanity? So what I find fascinating about this film here before is the fact that whether or not this little girl next door, Neve Dornan, is actually somehow the reincarnation of this dead girl, this dead daughter for Andrew Reesbro, whether or not that is the case, this film is definitely a ghost story. Andrew Reesborough is being haunted By the death of her daughter, and whether or not her daughter has, you know, quote unquote come back to her in this little girl next door, she is being haunted. This is the cornerstone of her entire existence. I mean, she is basically going through the motions. The death of her daughter has completely devastated her and everybody around her. Her own husband, John Joe O'Neill, her own teenage son, Louis McCaskey. And eventually even the neighbours, don't know Higgins and Miles McCann, can see exactly what's happening here. We know, we understand that this is a woman consumed by grief and this is an outlet for her grief. And even Andrea Reesborough herself can see what's happening. She knows this is weird. I know that this is a... Manifestation of my own grief at the death of my daughter. I know what's happening, yet I can't stop it, and that is really really powerful stuff. And I think this works exceptionally well as a story, a film about grief and the uncomfortable ways that that can sometimes manifest. And throughout the course of the film, we have you know little hints here and there. I mean, maybe there's something unusual going on here. I mean is going past the graveyard and saying, we were here before. That's just an odd thing that an imaginative eight-year-old girl might say. Having a ketchup face on your fish finger sandwiches, I mean, it's, I would imagine, a reasonably common thing. But to sit there and expect it to happen is perhaps a little unusual. So there's hints here and there that there is something supernatural going on. And there is some evidence for it. There's also evidence that Andrew Reesborough is, you know, losing her mind because she's so grief stricken. There's also another option which presents itself towards the end of the film as well. And that is creepy in a whole different direction. I mean, it's psychologically disturbing in a very, very different way to the rest of the film. You know, this binary option I mean, is it a ghost? Is it not? And then suddenly. There's a third option, and that's creepy and disturbing and wrong in a completely different direction. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many options as to what's actually going on here. And when we kind of have an explanation for it, it is quite honestly rather fucked up. (laughs) And it's very much, I think, a psychological horror film. I mean, this is not a film with jump scares. This is not a film with gore or anything like that. This is a film of atmosphere, a film of very, very disquieting atmosphere. I mean, whether or not there is you know a quote-unquote ghost or whether it's this third option, it's unsettling, it's disquieting, and everybody, including Andrea Reesborough herself, can see it happening, and that is absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, I think Here Before is a really, really good film. I think it works telling its tale. It works in giving all these different aspects, all these different facets of grief, of this situation, all different options as to what is actually going on and the explanation when it comes or you know, the, the situation seems to have been solved. I found it very satisfying and, as I said, creepy in a completely different direction and yeah it's it's a really good film I'm glad I saw it and I mean by the time this comes out you will be able to watch it on BBC 2 I'm assuming it's going to be on the iPlayer and you can watch it for free here in the UK and on those terms I absolutely recommend it because I think Here Before is an excellent film I'm fascinated to see what Stacey Gregg does next, and for me, here before is a definite yay. Next up, we have the black horror comedy Val. Not to be confused with the documentary about Val Kilmer, which was also out last year and called Val, but this is a micro-budget American indie film Written and directed by Aaron Fradkin, who has many shorts and a couple of features to his name, all on this lower budget end of the spectrum, all of them made in collaboration with his business partner and I believe also wife, Victoria Frax, who is credited as the co-writer of this film, Val, and has a minor role in Flashback as the protagonist's girlfriend. But Aaron Fradkin and Victoria Fratz wrote this film, which follows a man played by Zachary Moran who is on the run. A major incident has happened at a rich mansion, and the police are after this man, Zachary Moran. He's on the run, and after an altercation with a policewoman, Sophie Bradshaw, and her. Somewhat dumb partner Kyle Howard, Zachary Moran manages to escape and finds himself at another swanky house and essentially forces his way in to the house of Val, played by Misha Reeves. Zachary Moran is armed and desperate. He's definitely committed crimes, possibly even murder. He's not exactly sure what happened at the house but he is desperate. He needs cash. And Misha Reeves says, okay, I've got cash down in the basement because I run a cash business. You see, I'm a high class escort and there's money in the safe in the basement, but I do have a client coming around. So you're going to have to wait in the corner and I'll, I'll sort you out. And Zachary Moran spends more and more time with this high class escort, Misha Reeves. This client, Eric Griffin, comes around. The two police people, Sufo Bradshaw and Carl Howard, come around. And Zachary Moore spends more and more time in this large house owned by this high class escort, Misha Reeves. But it becomes more and more apparent that all is not as it seems. And Zachary Moran finds himself in an unexpectedly dark situation by the end of the film. And it's an issue of marketing and how to present a film like this, how to attract attention to a film like this, that there is kind of a twist in this film but it is in all the publicity. It's even on the poster. And for the majority of the film, it is not clear that this is the direction the film is going in. I mean, yes, there's one or two odd moments you think, oh, that didn't go how I expected. For instance, when Zachary Moran beats on the door of Misha Reeves, Misha Reeves opens the door and has a somewhat surprised expression on her face. we don't see outside the house she closes the door and when she turns around zachary moran is already in the house i mean that's an odd way of framing that particular scene that is unexpected there's something odd there so we have been primed to look for odd little moments like that but for the majority of the film it looks like a high-class escort and a desperate criminal But by the end of the film, it's something different, because Val, Misha Reeves, is a demon. To some degree, she's a succubus. And she is wanting to entrap the soul of Zachary Moran in her realm forever. And the gradual manipulation that Misha Reeves has been going on on this desperate criminal for the majority of the film makes a lot more sense. And yeah, I understand why it was done, but it's a little bit of a shame that the demonic side of this story had to be put in the publicity because for the majority of the film, it is a two-handed film, this desperate criminal and this high-class escort and eventually this other client, Eric Griffin, comes in who likes to be treated like a dog in the dungeon and you know that doesn't go well but the power dynamics of this situation are absolutely fascinating i mean this criminal this armed criminal who quite possibly has murdered somebody and has certainly shot this policewoman sufe bradshaw even though she you know is it's a Bullet wounds to the side, and later she shows up with her idiot white colleague, Carl Howard, and I found it very significant that this experienced black female policewoman is ignored by her rookie white male colleague, and he goes off and does his own thing, and that's why Sufo Bradshaw ends up getting shot. I thought that was a little detail in this film, but anyway, Sufo Bradshaw and Carl Howard, the police people, show up. This client shows up and Zachary Morin gets more and more desperate, so, you know, how am I going to get out of this? And in flashback, we see the specifics of what happened with this home invasion that he's attempted at the beginning of the film with his girlfriend, played by co-screenwriter Victoria Fratt. and we start to to understand the, the psychology of this desperate man, and, and I like the way that Zachary Moran plays this and the way that Victoria Fratz and Aaron Fradkin wrote it. With this general setup, you kind of expect this criminal to be you know, a heart of gold. I mean, he's not as bad as he appears to be. I mean, he needs to be a sympathetic protagonist. He was a good man put in a bad situation. I mean, that's the kind of pattern you expect usually, in this type of narrative. But that's not the direction this film goes in. Zachary Moran is playing this character as a hardened criminal. I mean, he is armed. He has no compunction about threatening Misha Reeves with actual violence. In a couple of places, he does have some physical altercations with Misha Reeves. He definitely has physical altercations with this client of Misha Reeve's Eric Griffin. I mean, that gets surprisingly violent. So this is a desperate man. And he doesn't really have any sympathy to him for the overwhelming majority of the film. And gradually the power dynamics shift and this desperate man and the mind game start. Misha Reeves starts talking about stuff, starts explaining stuff, starts working her wiles on Zacky And at a certain point, you realise, oh, hang on, Zacky not in charge anymore. Misha Reeves is in charge. She's managed to play enough mind games that she is in control of this situation. She's in control of everything. And eventually, you know, the whole demonic thing gets revealed, if you didn't know from the publicity and whatever already. And suddenly, it gets very specific and very concerned with morality and with souls, you know, and the price that needs to be paid for a person's soul. And I was getting really, really strong Beetlejuice vibes by the end of this film. You know, the bits where Michael Keeson has Beetlejuice is trying to manipulate the situation of Winona Ryder it seemed a little bit that I got similar vibes from that. I'm sure that was an influence on Aaron Fradkin and Victoria Fratt. So yeah, I mean, the, the balance of power is constantly shifting and who is in charge at any one moment? There's some interesting stuff there. And yeah, I, I think in general, this is a pretty good film. I mean, yes, it is very, very low budget. The production design is very poor. I mean, as is common with many films at this end of the spectrum, the sound design and the lighting aren't great. You have to accept that going in, that this is a micro budget film, and you have to accept it on those micro budget terms. But if you do, there's some good stuff here. I mean, there's weird asides which are dropped in to. The script, at one point, Misha Reeves, for not particularly good reasons, starts quoting lyrics from Talking Heads, and when Zachary Moran says, fuck, Misha Reeves makes the observation, ooh, I haven't heard you swear before, you only get one in this household, making an in-joke about the MPAA rating system, which, if you want to get a PG-13 rating, you can only have one F-bomb. And there's also a mechanism in this film which I'm not sure I've ever seen before and it's actually really, really effective because this dream logic kind of thing which is going on this strange way that Zachary Moran is experiencing this house, the odd little asides which are happening, the dream logic aspects of this story are explained by the fact that Zachary Moran when he had this altercation with this policewoman, Sufe Bradshaw, and ended up shooting her. In return, Sufe Bradshaw hit him over the head and he's got a severe concussion and is demonstrating the symptoms of a severe concussion. And having a concussion be the explanation for the odd things which don't really make sense in a film. I'm not sure I've ever seen that before and that was actually quite clever. So yeah there's interesting little moments in this film there's interesting little details in the script i think the acting is decent all around i mean this is largely a two-handed film between zachary moran and misha reeves and both of them are bringing that all to it i like the way that the supernatural the demonic aspects of the story are kept to the second half of the film even though I think by necessity you needed to include that in the marketing. But yeah, this is a decent example of a micro-budget horror comedy film. It does just as much as you expect it to do, and I think Val is actually a pretty decent film of this type. I mean, if you're willing to accept somewhat suspect lighting, somewhat suspect sound, poor production designs, all those kinds of things. If you can live with that, then Val is a decent film to check out. And I did like it quite a lot. So for me, Val, available on VOD platforms, is a solid, reasonably entertaining meh. And then we come to Summer Issues, which is another micro-budget American indie film. Basically, a group of friends just got together and made a film with each other. It is directed by Eric Kelly, who doesn't have a huge CV, and is written by Adrian Masnik, who is also one of the co-stars of the film, and is based around a somewhat directionless 20-something man, played by Vasilios Asimarkas who has come back to his hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts after a semester of college and is wondering what to do with his life. And with no better options, he goes back to work at the large comic book store he used to work at, alongside his friends Adam Maznick and Matthew Burkey, who never really left Worcester, never really wanted to leave Worcester. Their kind of stuck in arrested development working at this comic book store or not working at this comic book store avoiding any responsibility any work they're the kind of the goof off members of staff but also on staff there's the new kid who is only ever described as the new kid who is played by the director eric Kelly, and is actually somewhat responsible even though he's Dreams of being a filmmaker and is has a rather aloof attitude. There's also a female employee, Alicia de Rubio, who has managed to get her friend Anna Marie Calice a job at this comic book store. And Anna Marie Calice, this new female employee, instantly attracts the attention of our protagonist, Vasilius Asimarkos. And a tentative romance develops over the summer in this comic book store between this questioning character and the girl who seemingly just likes working in a comic book store. So what directions will this relationship and the life of Vasilius Asimarchos take? Will he go back to college, which he doesn't really like? He only went to college because his dad pushed him into it. He actually seems to like working in the comic book store. And will his relationship with Anna-Marie Khalees end up in a decent place or not? Like Val, which I was just talking about, this is another micro-budget indie film, and I should have realised it even before I rented Summer Issues, but it's actually... A very, very specific type of independent film. This is Clark's. It has almost the exact beats of Clark's. It has almost the exact kinds of characters as Clark's. Like Clark's, this was shot in a real life working store overnight. Like Clark's, it has stories of directionless people who might actually decide that this is what they like doing. They like being a clerk in a store. There's a significant subplot revolving around hockey. Now, admittedly, being a fan of ice hockey and playing ice hockey with your friends is something that could well happen in Massachusetts. But equally, was this a deliberate reference to Kevin Smith's clerk? This, I think, is very, very directly inspired by, if not a rip-off, of Clark's. But, it's been made by people who have nowhere near the talent of Kevin Smith. Now, I admit, I do have my issues with Kevin Smith. I think he's one of those people who started believing his own hype. And Kevin Smith hasn't made a good film in years, maybe even decades. I did not bother with Clark's Three, which was recently out at the cinemas. Actually, I think it might still be out at cinemas. I mean, I haven't even bothered looking. I have issues with Kevin Smith, but I have to admit that Kevin Smith did have some talent. I don't think the people making this film do have talent. Yes, this is a film which has you know the typical issues with a micro-budget film. The lighting isn't great. The sound isn't great. But even basic fundamental things like blocking aren't done well in this film. You know, blocking is where you place your actors. I mean, you stand there, you stand there. We can frame it this way. That's how things work. And in certain places, the blocking Of this film is not good and it didn't strike me like it was eric kelly the director saying hey we're going to be experimental we're going to break the rules because this is a, a dynamic way of filming it struck me that he just didn't know what the rules were and therefore didn't know he was breaking them and in dialogue the character that the director eric kelly plays has the audacity To name-drop Quentin Tarantino. And say, yo, Quentin Tarantino said that you you didn't need to go to film school, you just needed to experience the world. And he has the audacity to say that in dialogue. I mean, yes, admittedly the film was written by his friend Adam Masnik, but it's still Eric Kelly saying it on screen. And I hate to say this to you, Eric Kelly. You can name drop Quentin Tarantino as much as you want, but you just don't have his skills and again Quentin Tarantino is a director I have some issues with but I can see his talent I can't see the talent of anybody here not even in the acting role. I mean this is clearly a group of friends non-professional actors who got together and the acting the delivery is not great either there's just nothing that stands out in this film. I mean, it's a pretty typical story. I mean, Vasilios Asimakos going back to his hometown, deciding whether he wants to go back to college, deciding whether he wants to form a serious relationship with Anna Marie Calice. regardless of anything else, it is clear that he has outgrown his childhood friends, Adam Masnick and Matthew Burke. It's a pretty typical story. And told in a pretty typical way with no great acting i mean particularly these three guys Vasilius sasimacos adam Masnik, and matthew burkey not good acting the anna marie does a an okay job of acting but really there's awkward stilted dialogue which often isn't well framed isn't well lit the production design is just you know they had access to this Gigantic warehouse-sized comic book store. So I mean, there's some production values there for the simple fact that it's a real store. There's a subplot that Vasilius sasimarkos is suffering from anxiety, and people make comment about the pills he's got, including his stern father who is pushing him to college. Which it's, it increasingly appears that Vasilius sasimarkos just isn't the kind of person that suits college. And at one point, Vassilio Sassamikos actually has a panic attack. And the way that is visualised is not good. I I think Eric Kelly and the other filmmakers were trying for a a level of sensitivity, which they just could not achieve. I think the way that scene is visualised is actually kind of pathetic. I just don't think it, adequately demonstrates what it is like to have a panic attack. It's just some weird camera moves and some heavy breathing and really that's what you're giving us? So yeah this is this is a film which is clearly worshipping at the altar of Kevin Smith's Clarks and when you try to do this, when you specifically make it so close to a film like Clarks, I mean with a real-life store shooting overnight with the subplot involving hockey, with the pop culture references. It's clear that Clark's was the heavy inspiration for this, and it has to be said, this is nowhere near as good as Clark's. I do try and find these small independent films, films that nobody's talking about, films that you've probably never heard of, films that just get dumped onto VOD streaming platforms and left to fend for themselves. Sometimes I do find genuinely great films. Most of the time it's, yeah, that was okay, but every now and again you come across an absolute dud. And some issues, I'm sorry to say, is an absolute dud. There is nothing worth it in this film. You can find some issues on VOD platforms, but I don't think it's worth it because for me, it's a nay. Netflix Reviews Wendell and Wild is yet another animated feature available through Netflix, made by the legendary stop motion animator Henry Salek. I think Henry Salek is a rather unfortunate person in that his most famous film, he really didn't get credit for. Henry Selick is the person who directed The Nightmare Before Christmas, but it's always described as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, not Henry Selick's. And yes, he's had some success since with James of the Giant Peach, and particularly Coraline. But Coraline is the last feature-length film that Henry Selleck has made before this, and that was in 2009. And even now, I think Henry Selleck is a little bit getting marginalised in this film Wendell & Wilde, because it is produced by Jordan Peele. So all too often the publicity is about, yeah, this is Jordan Peele's Wendell & Wilde, not necessarily Henry Selleck's Wendell & Wilde despite the fact that he is the instigator of this whole project. It is based on a graphic novel, an unpublished graphic novel, that Henry Selick was working on with the horror author and comic book writer Clay McLeod Chapman. And this proposed graphic novel got turned into this film, Wendell & Wild, when Jordan Peele came on board and wanted to produce it. So yeah, it's somewhat a Jordan Peele project, more than it is a Henry Selick project, but he is still a legend in the realm of stop-motion animation, and an advocate for a particular kind of creepy and spooky stop-motion animation. Aesthetically, this is actually rather similar to The Nightmare Before Christmas, and uh, yeah, maybe we were giving Tim Burton too much credit back in the day. But nevertheless, this is a new stop-motion animated feature-length project from Henry Selick, and that is something to be celebrated. It tells the story of a young girl called Kat, who in a little prologue at the beginning of the film, when she's roughly eight years old, she is in a car accident with her parents. She is in the back seat and is startled by something, makes a noise, and therefore her father drives off a bridge, and her mother and father drown. And honestly, how many times have we seen that a car driving into a body of water, and the people drowning, and somebody being pushed out of the window and surviving? That's almost becoming a cliche. But anyway, that's what happens to this little girl cat. And in a very quick montage, we see that she has grown up in foster care system and eventually in the juvenile detention system. She is an angry, guilt-ridden young girl who blames herself for her parents' death and is basically a bit of a goth. Has the leather and the straps and a big boombox and green hair But she has been moved into a new programme that aims to give juvenile delinquents or people in the juvenile detention system a second chance. So she has been pushed off to a Catholic girls' school, which is run by the priest James Hong and a somewhat stern nun played by Angela Bassett. And Cat, this 13-year-old Cat, who is now voiced by Lyric Ross, doesn't really fit in with the very proper, very prim Queen Bees of the school, played by Tamara Smart, Seema Verdi and Ramona Young. And her only quasi-friend, if, but she doesn't really want friends, is a trans boy student at this Catholic girls' school, played by Sam Zelaya. So while all this is going on, in hell, a couple of Demon Brothers, Wendell and Wilde, played by Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key, have one simple job. They are responsible for replacing the hair of their father, Buffalo Belzer, voiced by Ving Rames, with a particular hair cream which allows these hairs to grow significantly this is a punishment detail because they tried to go to the living world and create a funfair because buffalo Belzer's thing in his little corner of hell is he makes all these damned souls go on these demonic fairground rides but wendell and wild think they can do better they want to go to the living world and create their own hellish funfair And they believe that Cat, who it turns out might be a Hell Maiden, is the person to bring them to the land of the living. And when they realise that this hair cream they've been using has the potential to resurrect the dead, all hell breaks loose in this little community surrounding this Catholic school, which is in the process of being bought out and turned into a for-profit prison by the villains of the piece, David Harewood and Maxine Peak. because of course the villains have to be English, but this evil couple want to turn this school into a for-profit prison, and it might well happen. So can Lyric Ross stop hell breaking out? Can she save the school? And can she resurrect her hometown, which is basically a ghost town now since the root beer factory which her father owned fell into disrepair after his death? Will this spooky story have a happy ending? The first thing that needs to be said about this film is just how diverse and inclusive it is. In the entire speaking cast, there is only one Caucasian voice performer. Arguably two, but the one definitively Caucasian voice talent is Maxine Peake, who is the villain of the piece. And her husband is black, played by or voiced by David Howard, but this person who wants to turn this town into a gigantic for-profit prison has floppy blonde hair, a red tie, and 90% of the time we see him, he's on a golf course. Yeah, Jordan Peele and Henry Selick were not being subtle about that particular character, you know, being the villain of the piece. And I think, I mean, I'm not, So familiar with the iconography, but I think the mother of this trans boy student, voiced by Natalie Martinez, is trying to resurrect this town, is trying to investigate these evil prison owners. Natalie Martinez believes that they burnt down this root beer factory so they can move in and turn it into a prison. And she's also the head of the local council. And It feels to me like she's supposed to be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, or an avatar for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm not so familiar with her iconography, but I think that's possibly something in there as well. So there's, you know, subtle political stuff going on in the background. And the fact that the villains of the piece are trying to build a for-profit prison, I think that in and of itself is a telling thing. But, you know, that's regardless of anything else. Everybody in this film is non-white, or pretty much everybody in this film. The other arguably white character in this is the kind of Van Helsing figure who works as the janitor in this girls' school, who, yes, he's white, but he's also in a wheelchair and ostentatiously doesn't have any legs. For some reason, he seems to be modelled after Marlon Brando, or he certainly looked like Marlon Brando to me, but he is voiced by the Israeli actor Igal Nayor. So, Caucasian... Actually, probably is Caucasian. all right. So, two Caucasian actors in a large voice cast. I mean, the orphanage worker who brings Lyric Ross to this new school is Native American. At the end of the film, there's a police... Woman who shows up, who happens to be wearing a hijab. Very, very inclusive. I mean, and when Lyric Ross is dumped on the doorstep of this girl school, I mean, she has you know a welcoming committee, and I think, oh, here we go. Here are the mean girls. Who here are the people who are going to be bullies? But a, they're not really bullies, and b. None of them are white. I mean, Tamara Smart is mixed race. She turns out to be the daughter of David Harewood and Maxine Peake. Seema Verdi is from South Asia and Ramona Young is from East Asia. And the next person that they meet in this is this Hispanic trans boy voiced by Sam Zelaya. And, you know, these interactions happen. I mean, Lyric Ross doesn't want to be friends with anybody. Uh, and the interactions that she has with these three girls, I mean, I was absolutely anticipating this would be you know the bullies the mean girl but they're not that yes they are a little bit insensitive they have a very very narrow perspective of the world i mean their privileged existence doesn't expand out too much i mean they're talking about goat yoga and meditation and you know wellness and all that kind of stuff and by the way The cute animal sidekick is the little baby goat that they use for goat yoga, and that is very cute. But they're not bullies. I mean, yes, they have a narrow perspective, but they're not bullies. And when Tamara Smart, the head queen bee, talks to this trans boy voiced by Sam Zelaya, she calls him Ramona instead of Raul, his name. And this isn't a kind of a mean thing i mean as soon as she says ramona who says oh sorry sorry i mean raul i keep forgetting this is somebody who is trying and all of these three girls are trying to be good they're not bullies they're not the mean girls and they're not white and when you see something like this which is determined to have as diverse a cast as possible, you see the vast spectrum of stuff which is possible, and that includes the soundtrack. I started to realise that every single song in this soundtrack is a piece of rock music produced by a black-fronted band. I mean, i'm not talking about rap i'm not talking about hip-hop or r&b or hybrid versions of that kind of music this is rock music made by bands who are black-fronted bands like living color who i recognize because they're the theme musics of the insanely popular wrestler cm punk and yes i am a wrestling fan so i recognize that track I recognised the band Death, because they were the subject of the documentary a couple of years ago, A Band Called Death. They basically were one of the founders of punk music, but because they were black, they were ignored until decades later, and this film was made about them. And also, TV on the radio. And I haven't heard TV on the radio for such a long time, and the track which is used in this film, Wolf Like Me, is an absolute banger i love that track in fact i'm going to play a little clip of it now I just love that track, and that is you know, proper rock music made by a black-fronted band. There's also the Scar band Fishbone, who Henry Selick actually directed a music video for back in the day. Lyric Ross's dad wears a Fishbone T-shirt as he is dying. And there's other you know, classic music like x-ray specs with the mixed race vocalist poly styrene and also the specials who had two vocalists one white one black but yeah ghost town by the specials is a track which constantly gets misunderstood i mean the title is ghost town this town is coming like a ghost town so yeah it's used in spooky elements and it's introduced in this song when we are introduced to this hellish funfair run by the Ving Rhames character so yeah this is a demonstration of a ghost town but it was a song about the rise of the far right and economic deprivation in the early years of Thatcher's England it's not a supernatural song at all, despite the fact it sounds like it. So yeah, they constantly misunderstand Ghost Town by the Specials, but it maintains this theme that every single band which is in the soundtrack for this film is black-fronted. And that's really cool, particularly since it reminded me how awesome TV on the radio is. But yeah... A deliberate attempt to be as diverse as possible. And I think it actually works. But quite apart from that, which yeah, all of that is great, it's also a really good story. I mean, yes, it's a little bit convoluted, it's a little bit complex, but the story works. I mean, the idea that these demons, Wendell and wild want to come to the real world so they can make a fun fair. I mean, yes, a demonic fun fair, but a fun fair nonetheless. That is really cool, and it creates all these visuals which are very, very similar to the Nightmare Before Christmas visual. The aesthetics of the two films are very, very similar. I mean, here in Wendell World, there's filth and slime everywhere. There's grotesques. There's gross-out moments. When Wendell World eventually do come to the world of the living, they're dressed as Victorian undertakers with a horse-drawn hearse, even though it is not a horse that is pulling it. It is a demonic, worm-like thing. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it's kind of grotesque. And everything in this film is kind of grotesque and kind of spooky. And you know, eventually there are zombies in this film, and some of these zombies are you know nothing more than walking skeletons. You know, the old guard being resurrected so they can push through these political changes. I mean, that's again, I think there's some genuine political satire in this. I mean, gentle political satire, but it is there. And yeah, it, it's fun, it's spooky, it's grotesque. It's everything that The Nightmare Before Christmas was for a new generation. And it is a generation. I mean, The Night Before Christmas was 1993. Uh, and yeah uh, i think that's uh yeah i'm old but yeah the spooky approach i think works really really well and yeah wendell and wild i think has the potential to become a new staple for the halloween season it's that good i mean the craftsmanship of henry selick and his team i mean don't allow Netflix to do that thing where it just cuts off the end credits because there's some really good stuff over the end credits of the making of, You're know, seeing the massive amounts of work that needed to be done in order to finish this film. I mean, apparently, they also had to survive a fire at their Portland, Oregon studio. But they managed to finish the film nevertheless, and there's something right at the end of the credits, which is actually really cool. So yeah everything in this film works. It is a tiny bit complex and convoluted but as you are watching it you completely go along with it and every stage along the way in all its grotesque slimy glory. It's very very good stuff and I really enjoyed myself. I think Wendell and Wilde is an excellent animated feature. It's probably going to be one of my favourite animated features of the year. I mean, obviously, there's still stuff to come out, including on Netflix. I mean, they've got a, a new animated Christmas car, yet another animated Christmas car, which I think is out next week or the week after. But regardless, Wonderland Wild, I think, is an excellent animated feature. You can find it on Netflix, and for me, it is a definite yay. Changing directions completely, but still under the broad umbrella of Oscar-bait material, is the narrative feature The Good Nurse, which is directed by Tobias Lindholm, who started out being mostly known as a writer. He has written most of Thomas Vinterberg's recent films, Submarino, The Excellent, The Hunt, The Commune, and Another Round, which I wasn't a big fan of, but Tobias Lindholm and Thomas Vinterberg have a very fruitful collaboration. But as director, Tobias Lindholm also has a decent enough CV on his own. He directed the excellent films A Hijacking and A War, and also did the TV miniseries, The Investigation, which was a six-episode retelling of the submarine murder case, which you know, has become one of those weird things. We, really, that actually happened? I mean, there's a documentary on Netflix, which I'm going to get to at some point, I think. But yeah, the six-part miniseries, The Investigation, about that was excellent. He's also done a couple of episodes of Mindhunter, But now Tobias Lindholm is directing a feature-length English-language film for the first time from a script by Christy Wilson-Cairns, who basically came out of nowhere but has already accumulated a very impressive CV. She co-wrote 1917 with Sam Mendes, and she co-wrote Last Night in Soho with Edgar Wright, two very different films, and actually two very different films from The Good Nurse as well, but she is the screenwriter for The Good Nurse, adapting the non-fiction book The Good Nurse by Charles Graeber, telling the real-life and extraordinary story of a serial killer, Charles Cullen, who quite possibly might be the most prolific serial killer, in American history, with as many as 400 victims potentially being linked to this nurse, this ICU nurse, although he was convicted of 27. In the film, Charles Cullen is played by Eddie Redmayne, but the focus of the film, the protagonist of the film, is a nurse named Amy Loughran, played by Jessica Chastain who works in a small hospital in northern New Jersey in the intensive care unit. She is overworked in an underfunded hospital, so when a new nurse joins the team, played by Eddie Redmayne, she is delighted, particularly when they bond over being single parents with girls roughly the same age. Jessica Chastain... Has a secret. She is suffering from cardiomyopathy. Basically, she has a severe heart condition, but needs to keep working for at least another couple of months so her health insurance will kick in. And once Eddie Redmayne discovers this, he helps her out and manages to hide this fact so the authorities at the hospital won't fire her. And he also gradually starts becoming something of a babysitter and a helper at home as well. Jessica Chastain starts to depend quite a bit on Eddie Redmayne. But, then there's a suspicious death in the ICU. There is a person who dies with a large amount of insulin in their system, insulin which they should not have been given. And because this suspicious death has occurred, the hospital has no choice but to report it to the local police department. Something they do not want to do, but they say, look, there's this suspicious death. Here is the two-page internal investigation we had. Surely you can just rubber stamp this and we'll just move on. But no, the local police department... Actually, starts to investigate, and gradually they hone in on Eddie Redmayne, and they realise that this guy has worked in nine hospitals over the past decade or so, and there have been suspicious deaths at every single hospital he has worked at. But can they prove it? Particularly when the hospital he is currently working at is completely stonewalling them. So, the police detectives played by Noah Emmerich and Namdi Assamwa. It always astonishes me that Namdi Assamwa is now an actor since for three or four years he was the best cornerback in the NFL. It looked like he was heading to the Hall of Fame, but yeah, he moved to a different team who played in a different way and his career fell off. But now he's an actor and. He's actually a rather good actor, but it always astonishes me when Namdi Asamwa shows up on a film. But regardless, Namdi Asamwa plays this police detective who is desperately trying to prove that Eddie Redmayne is a murderer. And eventually, him and his partner Noah Emmerich, the only way they can try and prove that Eddie Redmayne is a murderer is getting his friend, Jessica Chastain, to wear a wire and try and get a confession out of him. So, will this mass murderer be brought to justice? So, yeah, I mean, when I saw this listed on the Gold W lists of Oscar potential, I mean, Eddie Redmayne, Jessica Chastain, Oscar winning actors, Tobias Lindholm. Buff the nominated director, but he's written Oscar winning films. He wrote another round. And even Christy Wilson Cairns. I loved both 1917 and Last Night in Soho. So she's a, a good screenwriter as well. I mean, so many good people in it. And I was really interested in this film. And it's pretty good. It's a film which I think focuses on the personal relationship between Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne. Which is an interesting choice, and I'll be talking about that later when I talk about the crime documentary on Netflix. But the relationship between Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne is fascinating. I mean, this hard-working single mother with two girls who are about, I don't know, 11 and 8 or something around that area. She is desperately working hard to try and give a good life to her children, trying to hide the fact she's got this heart condition because if she loses her health insurance, she's completely fucked. Uh, you're know, Desperately trying to live her life. And then this kind, generous, good nurse. I mean, the title of the film, The Good Nurse, is accurate. I mean, by all accounts, this guy, Charlie Cullen, was an excellent nurse. It's just occasionally he killed people. He injected them with... Either insulin or digoxin, this heart medication, and shuffled people off this mortal coil. So when this guy shows up and supports her, works out that she's got this heart condition and covers for her, covers at home, you know, provides babysitting and you know similar duties for her children. She comes to depend on this guy and. There's also this factor that she has this secret. She's got this heart condition she doesn't want her bosses to know about. This guy knows this secret. So there's an intimate relationship in that way as well. So then to suddenly be told that this guy is being investigated for mass murder, that understandably rocks her. And initially she doesn't believe it, but when she sees some paperwork, I mean, it is blindingly obvious that something bad has been happening to these patients, and it's almost certain that Eddie Redmayne did it. So once she is convinced, she does everything in her power to help out the police, unlike the hospital. And this is the other aspect of the story, which I found absolutely fascinating. As it is portrayed in the film, this guy was moving from hospital to hospital to hospital over the course of about 10 years. Many of these hospitals had suspicions about this guy, but nobody did anything about it because they were so afraid of being sued. And even when this internal investigation is done at this particular hospital, The person who is in charge of it is the risk manager. This hospital is just so concerned about getting sued that they don't care about actually bringing this guy to justice and when they get suspicious, they just shuffle him off to the next hospital. Which is why he got away with it for so long and potentially killed up to 400 people. And that's the aspect that I found fascinating. The investigation by Namdi Asenwar and his partner. At every single point, they are being stonewalled, they are being given the runaround, not given any information, outright lied to. Oh yes, that that machine only saves things for 30 days. Unfortunately, we can't give you all his records. And when they get in touch with the manufacturers, what are they talking about? We can give, we, we give them the access instantly. So... They're being lied to, they're being stonewalled. The only concern of this hospital is we don't want any litigation. They don't care that this guy's potentially killing people. I mean, eventually they find a loophole to get rid of him, which is an interesting factor, which I'll be talking about later in the true crime documentary. But he just goes off and finds another job at which point you know jessica chastain agrees to try and wear a wire and get him to confess and yeah the film lays out the horrifying truth that these hospitals allowed this to go on for over a decade because they didn't want to get sued and potentially Hundreds of people died because of it, and that's the aspect of this story which I found really, really fascinating. But also the interrelationship between these two people. I mean, the level of trust, the level of companionship, the eventual levels of betrayal between these two people, Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain. I mean, there's there's so much going on there, and both actors play it exceptionally well. I mean, these are Oscar-winning actors and deserving oscar-winning actors they really play it out i mean eddie redmayne certain aspects of this film are utterly utterly chilling the opening shot of this film is eddie redmayne as a nurse in a hospital room and suddenly the patient codes we are watching this through a doorway and as the code is going on as doctors are trying to save this life Eddie Redmayne has just stood in the corner and we as an audience are focused on him through the doorway in the corner and he's got this completely blank expression on his face standing in the corner watching this person dying or, or watching the attempt to save this person and yeah it, it's really good stuff and the eventual confrontation where Jessica Chastain is wearing the wire and trying to get Eddie Redmayne to confess and yeah. You know, arguably pushes a little bit too hard but you know she's not a professional investigator but does become suspiciously involved towards the end of the film which again i'll be talking about in the documentary but yeah i mean that conversation sitting at a diner table opposite each other and jessica chastain basically saying i know what you've been doing let me help you or you need help and it plays out really really well i mean the acting in this is excellent the story is horrifying and everything comes together really really well so yeah i, I think it's still early days but i can easily see both eddie redmayne and jessica chastain guessing at least honourable mentions as Best Actor and Best Actress for this in my Oscar preview show. I doubt I'll be anywhere near a Best Picture nomination for this, but yeah, this is a really solid, really fascinating film. Very well acted and an incredibly compelling story. And sometimes that's all you need, particularly when it's on Netflix and you can just click the button. So yeah. This is a solid, well-produced, entertaining film. It's available on Netflix, and for me, The Good Nurse is a solid meh. And potentially knowing what they had with this narrative feature, The Good Nurse, Netflix also commissioned a true crime documentary giving the details about the real-life case. It's called Capturing the Killer Nurse and is directed by Tim Travers Hawkins, whose most notable project in the past was the documentary Chelsea XY about Chelsea Manning, which here in the UK got a cinematic distribution, but I believe is in Showtime in the States. Yeah, a an acclaimed documentary about Chelsea Manning, but, and now. Tim Travis Hawkins is doing this documentary, Capturing the Killer Nurse, which tells the same story of Charlie Cullen and the attempts by people, including Amy Loughran, to bring him to justice. And I think getting the negative stuff out of the way first with this True Crime documentary, I think this is on the rather lurid and rather ostentatious end of the true crime documentary spectrum. There are reconstructions put in this, which are, you know, ominous lighting and slow motion and everything done in silhouette and shadow. It's a bit ostentatious, quite honestly. There's also quite a bit of time where dialogue By the real life people being interviewed, seems to have been done in ADR. It seems like they had to go back to these individual people, like the detectives, Tim Braun and Danny Baldwin, and the nurse, Amy Lockran. And, you know, we didn't quite get the specific line we wanted in your interview, so can you just record something for us and we can use it in the film? I mean, this probably happens in other documentaries, but I don't remember ever noticing it so much in a documentary before, you know, the use of ADR, of deliberately recorded pieces of dialogue from these people in order to tell the story in a more efficient way. So yeah, as a piece of filmmaking, I don't think capturing the killer nurse stands up to much scrutiny. But it is a fascinating story and has basically the same details as the fictionalised version The Good Nurse, but there's a surprising amount of little details which seem like contrived things for the movie that actually happen. I mean, the fact that when this detective Danny Baldwin, played by Namdi Asimwai in the film, phones up. Pennsylvania from where he is in New Jersey and tries to get background on all the nurses the fact that there was a post-it note on the file of Charles Cullen that's what first got these policemen intrigued that actually happened there was a post-it note which was the reason they started focusing on Charles Cullen and gradually uncovered all these suspicious deaths the fact that eventually this hospital that Charles Cullen was working at fired him on a completely flimsy pretext, I and mean, he made a minor mistake on his CV, and that was enough that you lied to us, we're firing. According to this documentary, that was actually the police's idea. I mean, they noticed, hey, there's a discrepancy in his CV, please fire him. I mean, it's kind of like getting. Al Capone for tax evasion. I mean, a minor mistake on your CV, and that's what gets you fired from this hospital where you've been killing patients. The way that Jessica Chastain's character, Amy Loughran, initially got involved and was initially convinced of Charles Cullen's guilt, the risk manager of this hospital who is insisting, you know, we need to be present when you are interviewing our staff. For some reason, the risk manager leaves the room and Danny Baldwin slash Namdi Asimha pushes a bit of paper across the table to Amy Loughran slash Jessica Chastain and reading this bit of paper, it becomes blindingly obvious that something very wrong has been going on. That actually happened. A scene towards the end of the film where at the police station, Amy Lockran actually talked to Charles Cullen. She was brought into a room and had a conversation with him. And that's finally what made Charles Cullen confess. That actually happened. I mean, so things which seem very, very contrived in the fictionalized story actually happened. So, I mean, that's really interesting, confirming all these little fascinating details of the true story but what really stood out for me as i was watching this documentary version capturing the killer nurse when compared to the fictionalized version the good nurse what really stood out to me is the way that you can emphasize and de-emphasize certain things when you see the true story how it actually played out in the documentary you can see that christy wilson cairns as a screenwriter decided to focus on a slightly different thing than the actual story i saw the actual story in this documentary as a story of malpractice by a string of hospitals who pushed this guy out of the door and made him somebody else's problem because they were so so scared of getting sued i mean this was a string of institutional mistakes and deliberate mistakes that happened over and over again and let this guy kill people for over a decade the organization which actually broke this case in real life was the new jersey poison control center because at this hospital somebody said hang on a minute why is there insulin and why is there digoxin in this bag they phoned up the new jersey poison control center and the guy on the phone in new jersey's poison control center said hang on there's digoxin in somebody's bag you've got a murderer on your ward and they were saying this they were repeatedly saying this to the hospital look you seriously have somebody killing people in your wards, and nobody was doing anything about it. And when the police detectives contacted the New Jersey Poison Control Centre, the Poison Control Centre said, What took you so long? We've been saying for months there's been a murder at that hospital. So it was the New Jersey Poison Control Centre who started putting things together. But that does not appear at all in the fictionalised film. So the story of institutional malpractice, which is kind of what I was taking out of the fictionalised version The Good Nurse anyway, that's what I was taking out of Capturing the Killer Nurse. This was an institutional investigation about institutional malpractice. But that's not the focus of the screenplay by christy wilson cairn's the Good Nurse*, which is much much more focused on the relationship between charles cullen and amy lochran between eddie redmayne and just Chastain. it's a much more intimate a much more personal story about betrayal about starting to believe that your friend who you depend on completely might actually be killing people That's much more the focus of the goodness, and that's the emphasis which the screenwriter, Christy Wilson Cairns, decided to put on this story. And yet that's fine. I mean, that did happen, but emphasising it in the fictionalised story much more than the institutional side of things, which is already what I was taking out of the goodness, it made me realise how you can pick and choose what you focus on when you are writing a screenplay the fact that this guy was shuffled from hospital to hospital to hospital so many of these hospitals had suspicions but nobody was willing to actually investigate in case they got sued and then the final hospital he worked at everything is being done through the risk manager who is absolutely stonewalling the police investigation doing Everything in her power to not help the police because if the police get involved, if they figure out that this guy has been killing people and he's been killing people for decades, we're going to be sued out of existence. And making sure that all their employees know, look, don't talk to the police without a hospital representative present. It's patient confidentiality. You'll get fired if you start talking. And all this kind of stuff. Just desperately trying to cover up and stonewall. And it's kind of harrowing how easy it was for this guy to get away with it for so long because hospitals just didn't want to acknowledge it, didn't want to risk getting sued. And yeah, I think the real life story is. A story of institutional malfeasance whereas the fictionalized story The Good Nurse is a story about an intimate relationship which ultimately has many different layers of betrayal put on top of it and focusing on the personal rather than the institutional is a good way to go and yeah I'm glad I watched both stories both ways of telling this story because I do think the documentary Capturing the Killer Nurse enhances what was already there in The Good Nurse. I mean, it adds some details. It, I mean, confirms some of the odder things which actually really did happen in real life. But as a piece of filmmaking, as an individual experience, I don't think Capturing the Killer Nurse actually works. I think it's too lurid for its own good. It's too ostentatious for its own good it feels too heightened, too artificial. So yeah, as a piece of filmmaking, I don't think the documentary Capturing the Killer Nurse works, but it adds and confirms some good information. So as a companion piece, I think it's a solid mare Capturing the Killer Nurse. But as an individual experience, it's probably not worth watching unless you have watched The Good Nurse already. So... Yeah, a solid, unspectacular, mildly problematic meh for Capturing the Killer Nurse on Netflix. Apple TV Plus Reviews Raymond and Ray is a film available through Apple TV Plus and is written and directed by Rodrigo Garcia, who has a powerful heritage He is the son of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the Nobel laureate author from Colombia. But Rodrigo Garcia has a decent CV as a director. He started out in prestige TV in the early 2000s, doing episodes of The Sopranos, Carnival, and Six Feet Under, before creating the highly regarded TV show. In Treatment, or at least transposing it to America from its original Israeli version. And perhaps after the success of In Treatment, he got a reasonably prestigious feature film in Albert Nobbs in 2011, which got both Glenn Close and Janet McTeer Oscar nominations, And Janet McTeer was my personal Best Supporting Actress of 2012 in my Raw Footage Awards. And after Albert Nobbs, he did a lot more television. And his next feature film was Last Days in the Desert, which starred Ewan McGregor as Jesus and premiered at Sundance, but I don't think ever got cinematic distribution here in the UK. And his next film after that was only last year in Four Good Days, with Glenn Close and Mila Kunis about drug addiction, with Mila Kunis being a drug addict, struggling with her mother, Glenn Close. And now, almost immediately afterwards, we have Raymond and Ray. So, yeah, there were four years between Albert Nobbs and Last Days in the Desert, and then Five years between Last Days in the Desert and Four Good Days, and now it's only two years between Four Good Days and Roman and Ray. So he's accelerating, but in the meantime, he has been doing a lot of television. I mean, lots of HBO prestige type stuff. He's recently done episodes of The Affair and the remake of Party of Five they recently did. So, yeah, he's keeping himself busy, but not necessarily in the feature film realm. And now he has come back with this film, Raymond and Ray, which has been released onto Apple TV+. Raymond and Ray are half-brothers, Ewan McGregor and Ethan Hawke, who are long estranged, but reconnect after their father died. And their father who was both physically and mentally abusive to the boys, insists that his sons come to his funeral, which they reluctantly do. But when they are there, it also emerges that their father wants both Raymond and Ray to dig his grave by hand, which they are not keen on doing, but they do anyway supported by all the people in the local community who seem to have loved his, their father. Nobody seems to have a bad word to say about him in Richmond, Virginia, where he was living. And that includes the Spanish woman who he was living with for the last few years, renting a room for from the last few years, Maribel Verdoux his hospice nurse Sophie Oconedo, also doesn't have very much bad to say about him or certainly felt close enough to him that she wants to attend the funeral but as these people spend time together and dig this grave together myriad secrets and lies and resentments crop up and these two damaged men have to deal with their past and with the complicated relationship they had with their distant and abusive father. So yeah this is the kind of film that feels like it should have premiered at Sundance. It didn't, it premiered at Toronto but it's got that kind of Sundance-esque feel. Family dramas, family secrets, family resentments, a quirky way of getting everybody together, you know, hand digging this grave, with the dead father claiming he is Tongan in order to allow this with the cemetery. At various other points, he also claims to be Jewish when he suits him. And that's just something that everybody accepts. And they have all these different people who knew their father in late life i mean this woman maribel Verdú. i mean the awesome actress maribel Verdú from Mama Tambien and various other stuff but maribel Verdú had a brief sexual relationship with their father but towards the end it was just he was living with her when he was dying there's a local priest played by vondie curtis hall who Seems a little bit of a charlatan, but he too doesn't have very much bad to say about their father, which everybody really resents. I mean, when you have the natural platitudes of bereavement, yo, know, I'm sorry for your loss, he was a great man. When you don't actually like the person who has died, those kinds of things really, really don't help. And it's fascinating seeing how each of these two people, Ewan McGregor and Ethan Hawke respond to their father i mean both of them had bad childhoods and despite being half brothers they kind of grew up together because the two women who this guy was involved with they became friends so they hang out a lot together but they were both physically and mentally abused ewan mcgregor has dealt with this by becoming very very uptight very repressed he has simmering anger and rage at his father for a very, very specific reason which emerges towards the end of the film, you know, secrets and revelations get talked about. But he is you know, a very uptight, very controlled person and eventually he will explode. Whereas Ethan Hawke, he is a much more open person. I mean, he... Openly talks about the fact he's a recovering addict. He used to be a jazz trumpeter. And Ethan Hawke has a thing about the trumpet. His character plays the trumpet towards the end of the film as kind of his tribute to his dead father. And I think there's a chance that Ethan Hawke was actually playing that trumpet because he did learn to play the trumpet when he did a biopic of Chet Baker a couple of years ago, the jazz trumpeter who heroined himself to death so i think there's a chance ethan hawke was actually playing that trumpet but anyway ethan hawke is is a much more open laid-back kind of character he casually and successfully flirts with almost every woman he comes across if he wanted to he could have multiple women in his bed by the end of this film and he kind of starts spending time with sophia This. Hospice nurse, and equally Ewan McGregor starts spending time with Maribel Verdu, who was his father's ex-lover and as a child. So yeah, that gets complicated, but everybody is responding to these things in their own way. They have been traumatized, but they are dealing with it in very, very different ways. And the ways those things rub up against each other and the conflicts which come up between these two half-brothers i mean yes they were a support structure when they were both being physically and mentally abused in childhood but they kind of drifted apart and being forced to spend so much time together i mean old simmering anger and resentment start filtering up and it gets complicated and people are dealing with this in very very different ways And it's kind of interesting, but I don't think there's any great revelations here. I don't think there's any great excitement or originality here. It's basically people discussing their traumas in a surprisingly stagey way. This feels like a film which was adapted from a stage play, because it's almost entirely or large chunks of this are up the graveyard as these two men are digging this grave and all the people surrounding them you know like the undertaker this flashy priest von de curtis hall eventually you yeah, know maribel Verdu, the woman he was living with and her i don't know 10 11 year old son and this hospice nurse sophie Canedo, and eventually wouldn't you know it there's other sons who show up as well this was not a good guy and reconciling with the legacy that this guy has left his children is one of the major things which this film is dealing with but it's not doing it in any particularly insightful way and it feels very very stagey and i don't think it necessarily needed to feel quite so stagey so Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty good stuff here. Lots of Sundance-esque stuff about family trauma and family resentments. And it's okay. There's nothing outstanding here, I don't think. And I certainly don't think it's going to be any strong contenders at the Oscars which is you know the main reason I watched it. I don't think it's going to make my personal list on any category but it's an okay film. It's available on Apple TV plus and it's a pretty solid somewhat unremarkable meh. The Ace. So there were two yeses in this particular episode. Here before is a story about a haunting which is, is not necessarily a story about a ghost whether or not this little girl next door is actually somehow andrew reeseborough's daughter andrew reeseborough is being haunted by it and the way the film plays out demonstrates that gives you so many options gives you so many intricate details about what's going on and the final revelation i did not see coming and is rather good so yeah here before i think is excellent here in the uk you should now be able to find it on iplayer since it has premiered on BBC 2 well it will have premiered on bbc2 by the time this comes out so yeah if you're in the uk you can check this out on iplayer and i do thoroughly recommend it because here before is for me a definite yay as is Wendell and Wild, the animated feature available on Netflix. It is Henry Selleck at his best. The creepy, spooky, somewhat grotesque style of Henry Selleck brought to a story which is entertaining if a little complex, but so many interesting ideas, so many visual flares. So much diversity because you know the fact that there is one, arguably two, Caucasian-speaking roles in this entire film. There's a trans character who is not particularly ostracised for being trans, and the whole kind of outsider aesthetic really works, including having you an entirely black-fronted rock soundtrack including the awesome TV on the radio. I'm so glad I got reminded about TV on the radio because they rock. But yeah, Wendell & Wild works on so many levels and I really, really enjoyed it. So yeah, I think this is going to be one of the better animated features of the year and Wendell & Wild is also a yay. So the next episode of this podcast is most likely going to be a cinema edition with the one cinematic film out this week that I want to check out Black Panther Wakanda Forever. But because that's the only film being released cinematically, I've figured out that I've actually got a couple of future reviews ready to go. In two weeks' time, there are a couple of films which, for differing reasons, I already have reviews of, so I may as well release them a week early. So, alongside Black Panther Wakanda Forever, I will also be reviewing After Sun in the next cinematic episode. That is a film from debut writer director Charlotte Wells about a young girl going on holiday with her distant father to turkey over the summer and the adult child figuring out her relationship with her father all those years ago this has been highly praised after the festival circuit but wasn't that big a fan of it but i will be giving a full review in the next cinematic episode and I will also be re releasing my review of the film Clara Sola, the Costa Rican film which I saw at the 2021 Film Bath Festival, and a full year later is finally being given a legal release. At time of recording, it's unclear whether this is a cinematic release or simply a VOD release. At time of recording, I can't see any cinematic screenings I can get to of Clara Sola, but either way, I think it's an excellent film and I want to highlight it, so I will re release the review I did at the 2021 Film Bath Special. It's a film about a woman named Clara who lives in the Costa Rican rainforest and has scoliosis. She is a hunchback, for want of a better term. And throughout her life, her mother has insisted that she is special, she is holy. She has the power of healing and that's all she's ever been good for because of her hunchback but a handsome young man comes into her orbit and probably for the first time a sexual awakening happens for this woman who is basically in her 40s and has never really lived her life so breaking free of her restrictive environment this woman clara has some surprising awakenings during the course of the film. I really, really liked Clara Sola, and I hope as many people manage to see it as possible. And to encourage you, I will be re-releasing the review I recorded at the 2021 Film Bath Festival Special podcast. And speaking of which, the 2022 Film Bath Festival Special will be coming reasonably shortly at time of recording i've got one last film to watch at the film bath festival i think it's six or seven films i've watched this year and i will be releasing my reviews of all the films i saw at the film bath festival in a special podcast which should be coming pretty quickly and also there will be films that i saw at the africa eye film festival in bristol the annual Festival, or at least it was annual until Covid, but it's the annual festival highlighting films from the African diaspora. And I've seen some films there which I will also be reviewing. So there will be a cinematic release reviewing Black Panther Wakanda Forever, After Sun, and Clara Sola. There'll be a Film Bath Festival special and an Africa Eye Film Festival special. All coming fairly shortly and I've still got masses of stuff to tick off the Oscar potential list so yeah I'm gonna maintain being very very busy but not quite so many screenings so I should knock it all out pretty quickly but yeah that is some of the stuff which is coming up on this podcast in the near future and I think I need to remind you that the raw footage podcast feed continues being very, very erratic. So, the best place to find these podcasts is on the new feed I have started, the Yene Omer podcast feed, which I've put on the lists of many podcast directories. If you come across one where it's not, I'll endeavour to figure that out you can contact me at rawfootagepodcast.gmail.com or yane or ma at gmail.com and i will endeavor to put the new feed on as many podcatchers as possible because the raw footage feed is really really starting to be erratic and i am gonna to have to shut it down in the new year, so maybe the time has come to switch over your feeds to Yay Nay or may. But yes, that brings me to the end of this particular episode of the Raw Footage Podcast and the Yay Nay or may Podcast. And all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay or may, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and i will see you next time where i shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure